Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel 8, 1 through 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up at last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is God's word. Okay. I'm a sucker for dad humor. Mahatma Gandhi walked barefoot most of the time, which produced an impressive set of calluses on his feet. He also ate little, which made him frail, and with his odd diet, he suffered from bad breath. I guess you could say he was a super callous, fragile, mystic, hex with <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> now, this jo joke works if you've seen Mary Poppins. It makes sense when you make that connection. And that's actually how prophecy works. It makes a connection between a declaration and an event. And until that connection is made, 
Some aspects of a prophecy may not be clear, but once the connection is made, things fall into place and the prophecy makes perfect sense. Now, let me show you a couple examples of this because we're getting into the kind of the deeper end of the pool in Daniel, and I want to help you understand how prophecy works, okay? First one will be Isaiah 44, verse 28. Here's what it says. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now, this is a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah died in 681 B.C., so early 7th century B.C., and uh, the prophecy had to have been before that, so let's just say it was around 700 B.C. And he has this prophecy, and he says, Cyrus is my guy, and he's going to do what I want him to, and he is going to declare of Jerusalem, build Jerusalem, and he's going to declare of the temple, lay the foundation for the temple. Now, anybody hearing that in 700 B.C. is going to say, well, first off, who is Cyrus? And what are you talking about? Jerusalem and the temple are currently standing. I mean, we can go to Jerusalem. There's the city. There's the temple. This is weird. 140 years later, this prophecy was actually fulfilled in 538 B.C. Actually, in Daniel's lifetime, Daniel would be about age 80 when this prophecy was fulfilled. Now, 50 years before the fulfillment, Nebuchadnezzar came and leveled Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed. But Cyrus, the Medo-Persian conqueror of Babylon, actually issued a decree. And he said, I want you, Israel, to go back to the land, rebuild the city, lay the foundation of the temple. In other words, exactly what was predicted came true. But until that moment that answered to the prophecy, you would go, Cyrus, who's that? Rebuild the temple. Why would you do that? It's right there. When in point of fact, several, you know, a hundred and a half years later, it made perfect sense. Perfect sense. Let me show you another one, all right? This is Ezekiel 26, 3 and 4. This is one of my favorite prophecies because of the way it plays out. This is fascinating. So here's what it says. Now this is Ezekiel, who, by the way, was a contemporary of Daniel. Daniel was in the court. Ezekiel was in kind of a, a refugee camp. And he was a prophet, a prophet of Israel, but in exile along with Daniel. And here's what he said. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves, and they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord. 
Now that prophecy was issued about 586 BC, which is also the time when Jerusalem was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. And apparently Tyre, which was a rival nation to the north along the sea, was celebrating. They were going, yes, they finally got what's coming to them. Now we can have greater dominance. Love it. So glad that they got busted. And so they were celebrating. And Ezekiel, when the word reached him, he issued this prophecy. And he said, it's not going to go well for you, Tyre. And it didn't. About a year later, Nebuchadnezzar actually surrounded Tyre and put it under siege. Basic, can you imagine being locked in a city for, and it turned out, for 13 years until Tyre fell? Now, Tyre consisted of a city on the mainland. It also had some outlying villages around it. All of that was destroyed. There was also an island offshore where some of the city was. Now, if you were to look at that prophecy, you would say, okay. So 13 years later, Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Tyre, but a place for fishing nets or whatever? I mean, here's all this rubble. The latter part of this prophecy was not fulfilled until 332 B.C., almost 250 years later. And uh, Moody Bible Institute actually did some interesting videos. Now, this is a long time ago, and one of them was on this. They actually provided footage that shows the lay of the land. But when Alexander the Great attacked Tyre, which the city was still there, on the mainland, they had rebuilt it. When Alexander the Great came, everybody, because of his reputation, knew we're not safe. So they fled to the island, which they assumed would be the basis of their safety because this was a walled kind of citadel island. Alexander the Great knew that a swift and complete victory was absolutely essential to maintain his momentum. And so, you know, surrender or bypassing Tyre, which was a major city, was not an option. So what did he do? He actually built a causeway from the mainland to the island. And he used all of the rubble from Tyre to actually become the material for that causeway. So all of the rocks, the stones, the everything was dumped into the ocean along with they they needed more dirt to get there all the way and so they actually scraped all of the dirt down to the bedrock so that they could build this causeway that was wide enough for a, a an army troop to make their way to Tyre and Tyre fell Ezekiel 26 12 says and they will Make a spoil of your riches and prey of your merchandise. Break down your walls, destroy your peasant houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. <laughs> to build that causeway, Alexander used all of the debris of the mainland city. Even scraped off all the dirt, threw the rocks, threw it into the sea. 
And this became a large flat place that is currently an ideal location for the drying of fishing nets. You can see pictures of it if you watch the Moody thing, which I don't know if it still exists. Bottom line, here's the prophecy, and here's what actually happened. Perfect sense. You see, perfect alignment between what was predicted and what actually happened. Now, that's mind-boggling. How is that possible? <laughs> it aligns perfectly with two things we know about God. One is he's omniscient. He knows all things. And by the way, he's not like you and me. You know, my brain has certain information in it, but I can only think of about one or two things at any one time. I'm not even a good multitasker. I can do the one thing. In God's case, he knows all things actual and possible at the same time. How is that possible? I don't know, but that's how our God operates. That's who he is. Here's a verse, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. It says this, I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is perfectly capable of saying, here's what's going to happen in 600 B.C. Here's what's going to happen in 250 B.C. He knows what he's talking about. And the second thing is he's eternal. He's not constrained by time. 2 Peter 3.8 says this, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. God dwells outside of time. He created time. And so it's no problem for God to be able to say, oh yeah, I can tell you what happened on day one, and I can tell you what happens at the end. God is perfectly capable of describing with pinpoint accuracy things that have not yet happened for us. And this is what makes following his counsel the ultimate smart play. I mean, trust him. <laughs> now, to understand prophecies in Daniel, which draw on this capacity of God to be able to tell us at one point what is going to happen far into the future with perfect accuracy, I also need you to understand something called a prophetic event sequence. Let me explain. So in chapter 2, now... We've already done a couple uh, sections where this is relevant, but I haven't talked about the concept, but I want to get it to you now because it's going to build for some things that are coming. What's a prophetic event sequence? Well, in chapter 2, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had this vision. He saw this image, and it had gold and silver and bronze and then iron and then iron and clay, and then a superstone came, and the whole thing fell. What he was seeing was a sequence of basically empires, moments in history. In chapter 7, the passage we looked at last week, we saw a lion, then a bear, then a leopard, then a mutant beast, and then the heavenly court. And again, this is an, the lion represents a certain phase of history, the bear something that follows, the leopard something that follows that, the mutant beast something that follows that, and the heavenly court something that follows that. Here in chapter 8, we're going to look at a sequence. 
but it only has two elements. It doesn't repeat all the elements that were in the previous ones. It just has a, a ram followed by a he-goat. Now, there is correspondence. The gold in vision two matches the lion in vision chapter seven. And in Daniel 2.38, we actually got to know that because the, the, in the interpretation, Daniel was able to say to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You, king of Babylon, are that. The silver in chapter 2 matches the bear in chapter 7, which matches the ram in chapter 8, the passage we're going to look at. And when there's an interpretation of this vision, and we'll talk about it next week, we read this statement. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Then we have this bronze leopard he-goat, and we're informed that's Greece. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large home that is between his eyes is the first king. So here's a prophecy that is actually a sequence. And you might see the fulfillment of one element while awaiting what happens with element two. And when it gets fulfilled, element three, etc. And so here's a prophetic sequence. So when dealing with a sequence prophecy, fulfillment will often occur in stages. All the elements won't be fulfilled at the same time. So one part may make perfect sense, while a later element in the sequence remains a mystery. This is, this is key. I mean, you're going to get lost in the remaining chapters of Daniel, if you don't understand this, the perfect sense of the fulfilled in a prophetic sequence affirms that the remaining prophecy will someday make perfect sense. If you see perfect completion of, let's say, components one, two, three, there is every reason to believe that if four hasn't happened yet, it will in ways that are perfectly informed by the relevant prophecy. It just hasn't happened yet. You know, the passage that I showed you about the defeat of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar, that was accomplished in 570 B.C. And someone could look at that and say, well, this, you know, all this stuff about throwing the city into the ocean, I mean, that's just a way of saying Tyre's going to be swamped. It's just a metaphor. It wasn't a metaphor. It actually happened. It just happened to happen uh, 250 years later. So here's the bottom line. Don't water down, and I realize there's a little dad humor in there because of what we're talking about. Don't water down a prophecy that doesn't fit with history. Just wait and see. A perfect fit is coming. Now that'll be very important as we go along because one of these prophetic sequences actually has tens of components in it that tell us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and on. And so the components that are yet future are going to be fulfilled. All right, so let's jump into this vision. And I call it the 553 vision because that's the year in which Daniel received this. In 555, he received the vision that was in chapter 7 that we've already looked at. Now, two years later, 
he receives a vision. And the first thing that happens is Daniel is, gives us kind of a sense of his preparation. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So he's saying, I had this vision in the first year of Belshazzar, and now I have another one in the third year. Now, by the way, it's been over 50 years since Daniel came to Babylon. So he's probably about 65 at this time. Belshazzar is the last king, he and Nebuchadnezzar are the last king of Babylon. Babylon is going to fall in 14 years. So we're at the end of the first of this sequence. Daniel wrote this vision down as he was instructed. You'll see in verse 26. He was actually told, write this down. Because I want the people at First Evangelical Church in 2023 to understand this and everybody else who knows the Lord. Now the vision is narrower in scope than chapter 7. Chapter 7 we see these, this sequence of uh, four and then a fifth. Here all we see are two animals. Now these animals are representative of something. And all of it is future for Daniel, but it's all past for us. We can actually compare, we can look at the match between what was described and the actual events. Now, by the way, this is a very interesting year when Daniel receives this prophecy. This is, happens to be the year when another prophecy was fulfilled. Here it is from uh, Isaiah 45.1. He says, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Now it's from Isaiah. That's 150 plus years earlier. And here's God saying, I'm going to promote Cyrus. And in this particular year, 553 BC, that was the year that Cyrus's ascension began because what he did is he conquered his rival and formed this group called Medo-Persia. So the beginnings of Medo-Persia actually are occurring in this precise moment. Verse 2, he says, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the prophets of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was by, beside the Uvi Canal. So he's in this vision, and he's actually been taken to another location. He apparently recognizes it, maybe in his 50 years of travel and service. He's been there before, I don't know. But Susa is the capital of Medo-Persia. And if you want to get a look at uh, this community, go to Esther, book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 2, and it will describe for you what Susa became. Now, Daniel, in this vision, he sees a, a citadel, which is an armed fortification, and it's right by a canal that is a major waterway. I'll give you one sneak tidbit. This is the waterway, the canal, that Alexander the Great used to bring his troops to Medo-Persia and to conquer them. Uh, he sees this ram. It's a ram with two unbalanced horns. You know, one grows and then another grows, but it's much longer. It's bigger. So the, the bigger horn grew second. What's that about? Uh, the ram moved west and north, followed by south. He was unstoppable. 
No one could beat him. He thinks he's big stuff. He's proud of himself. And he is impressive. Then comes the he-goat. And the he-goat is described in two phases. Phase one is what I call one to four. This goat comes from the west, and he's really moving. He's flying. He's like a cartoon character where his feet aren't even touching the ground. And he has one big horn between his eyes. So this is not like a, a, a goat. Uh, it has like a unicorn horn. <laughs> he's prepared to deal with whomever with this horn. He's got one big horn between his eyes, and basically he's, you know, he's flying. You get in his way, you are going to be on the ground. He has anger management issues. He's mad about something. He's upset about something. What is he upset about? Good question. The ram didn't stand a chance, and the ram was beaten at the canal, which is, again, I've already sneak previewed you on that. That was really where Alexander the Great brought his troops. The male goat makes much of himself. He's pleased with himself. He's great. We could call him He-Goat the Great. Then phase two, which is four to one. We, we go from four to one. The large horn is broken at the apex of his power. So here's this He-Goat with this unicorn horn, and he's stopped, and he's replaced by four horns that match the four points of the compass. So he's got a, a horn going south, a horn going north, a horn going east, a horn going west. He's kind of like the leopard, interestingly, that had four heads that was in the chapter 7 vision. And then there's a new detail that is added. This is something that goes beyond chapter 7. There's one small horn becomes prominent. One of those horns becomes a challenge. It says of that small horn that he dominates the beautiful land, which is a reference to Israel. He reaches for the stars. He makes some stars fall. And he promotes himself as an equal with the commander of the stars, which is God. He stops the sacrifice. He damages the sanctuary. And apparently there's compromise amongst the people that contributes to the progress of his schemes. Truth is in jeopardy, but he gets his way. This guy sounds like a problem. Let me try and capture the mindset of this that is just embedded in these elements. To stop the daily sacrifice and pollute the sanctuary is to say... Now, see if this doesn't sound a little bit like things you might hear today. You know, I'm just fine the way I am. I don't have a sin problem. I certainly don't need some intervention with some supposed supreme being. I am my own God, and I'm doing life on my terms. Only question, are you going to join me? That's the mindset <laughs> of this animal, this person. Then Daniel hears about a timetable. Two holy ones, angels, have a conversation about the duration of this atrocity, whatever this guy is doing. And it says the sacrifice will be stopped and the temple desecrated for 
And I think this number is to be divided in half. 2,300 uh, nights and days equals 1,150 24-hour periods. Then things will be put to rights. Now, you might be saying, <laughs> what does this mean? And I would say, what a great question. It deserves an entire sermon. That's what's coming next week. In the meantime, what I want to do is just help you understand some ways that just what you have seen so far in Daniel is designed to change how we live, how we think, etc. So I'm going to give you five application points, five ways in which what we're seeing in these prophecies is designed to affect how you live. Here's the first one, trust him. In a world that seems unglued, God is fully aware of what is coming and he is capable of giving us timely insight to negotiate the challenges. Trust him. Listen to this statement from Jesus. This is from Mark 13, 23. He says, take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have provided you with adequate but essential information to be ready for what is coming. Really? Yeah. It's in his word. So trust him by studying what he says we need to know and do. What does Jesus say is most important for us to do now? Great question. Number two, ask him. This capacity is what makes it possible for God to embed answers to our prayers into future history, even before he asks. The fact that God dwells outside of time, it's possible for God, I don't understand this, but this is what it is. Oh, yeah, Jim is going to be in trouble on, uh, you know, February 10 of 2023. And he's going to, in light of that, he's going to say, God, would you please? So I'm going to go ahead and dial that in and put it into the equation of what is going to happen in history. He's able to actually pre-position the answer because he dwells outside of time. His perfect ability to see what is going to happen tells me he can see what's going to happen in my life and plan and prepare and provide accordingly. In Matthew 6, 8, Jesus says this, your father knows what you need before you ask him. There is no request you can make that is beyond God's ability to answer before you ask. Sometimes as a parent, you do this. You find out about something that your kids wanted or wished and you say, I wish you had only told me sooner. God never has to say that. God knows what you need. He knows what you're going to need. He knows what you're going to need that you don't even know you're going to need. So here's a smart prayer. God, even right now, 
I'm not confident of my ability to ask for what I most need, but you know what I need. So give me today what I need. I use that prayer first thing in the morning. I say, God, teach me what I need to learn this morning. And then I read his word. And he comes through every morning. Our God dwells outside of time. That's why he can tell us what's going to happen with perfect insight. So ask him to give you what he knows you will need. And trust him. He'll come through. So who would you like to follow? Someone who thinks they know what's going to happen but doesn't? Or someone who knows how things will end even before they get started? Obviously the latter. God knows what is a stupid plan and God knows what is a good plan. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. There are things that we think this is a really good idea. I really need to do this. I look back at me as a kid and I think of some things and I go what was I thinking? God says, here's a way to live, and it will end well. Trust him, ask him, follow him. God knows the life way. I like that title for a store, life way. But Jesus is the life way. Do it his way. Number four is hear him. If God's prophetic roadmap makes perfect sense of history, it will make perfect sense when it speaks to our future. Whatever he is saying about what is coming, listen to him. You know the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation? There's a number of commands in there. Here's one of them. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So those letters to the seven churches were not just given to the seven churches. It says, let him who has ears. Do you have ears? Then let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to him. Are you actively engaged? Am I actively engaged in hearing what Jesus has to say about our future? Now, a bunch of you who are saying, yes, have been there Wednesday nights. I love it. We're having fun. Are you actively engaged in hearing what Jesus has to say about our future? Or are you going, yeah, yeah, that's all, you know, uh, you know people get all wound up about that. But, you know, I'm just living in the now. Bad plan. And application number five is become his child. You know, maybe you're saying as you're hearing me, I don't know how to hear what Jesus says about my future. I mean, how am I supposed to hear that? Let me give you, if that answers to you, let me give you your first lesson. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve judgment. And because of that, here is what will happen. Those who do, this is 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will pay the penalty of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Here's what he's saying. If you do not embrace the gospel, it will end badly. It won't end well. Jim, that sounds like really bad news. Yeah, it is. Jesus, in his word, says that your story will not end well if you do not know Jesus. But there is, according to Jesus, an alternate end to your story. Listen to this. This is from John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you will receive him as your savior and believe in him, you will become his child. And get this. When you become his child, when you become a child of God, he gives you the ability to hear his voice. He says, my sheep hear my voice. If you're going, I don't know what God's going to do in the future. Maybe you've got a hearing problem. But if you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's like he flips a switch and you are hearing for the first time. And you can hear what he says about here's what you need to do to think, to say, to be ready for what's coming. If you read the Bible and it doesn't make sense, then maybe you have never embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and enjoyed the benefit of being able to hear what he has to say. Would you like to be able to turn on that hearing? You can do that right now through something as simple as prayer. I'm going to close in prayer in just a sec. When I do, I'm going to pray a prayer first that could be a prayer of your own heart in which you're saying, I want to believe in Jesus as my Savior. And in that moment, you will begin to hear his voice. Let's pray. If you want to pray that prayer, you can pray something like this. God, I am a sinner, and I deserve eternal separation from you. And that is going to happen unless I make one change. I am choosing right now, in this moment, to change. I am embracing Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He died on the cross for my sins. He died for me because you love me and I'm choosing in this moment to love you back. Father, as we get ready as a congregation to start the process with the second half of this chapter and then in the chapters to follow, to get a good glimpse of our future, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are overcomers, who hold their testimony, who obey our Savior, who live all out, all in for him, no matter what our culture throws at us. We want to be that kind of people. We want to be those of whom you would say, well done, good, faithful servant. Help us as we keep moving through this book to become precisely that. We want to be people who are hearing you every day, 
who trust you, who are asking you to give us what we need. Help us to be that because we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior. Amen.